Each one of you will spend time every day with a teammate of a different race. You will learn about him and his family, his likes, his dislikes. You'll report back to me until you meet every one of your teammates. Until that time, we go to three-a-day practices. You continue to ignore each other, we'll go to four-a-day practices. Now, is there any part of this that you don't understand? Let's see. What's your daddy's name? I mean, you do have a daddy, right? Look, I have a father, and his name is Eric. And what's he do? Oh, wait. He does have a job, right? They're gonna put me in the movies. Huh? They're gonna make a big yes. star out of me. This one. I mean, I don't even have to ask, but I will. What do you think of this one? Does the term cruel and unusual punishment mean anything to you? <sighs> Alright, man, listen. I'm Gary. You're Julius. Let's get some particulars and just get this over with, alright? Particulars? Yeah. No matter what I tell you, you ain't gonna never know nothing about hey, me. Hey, listen. I ain't running any more of these three days, okay? Well, what I got to say, you really don't wanna hear, cause honesty ain't too high up on your people priority list, right? Honesty? You want honesty? Alright, honestly, I think you're nothing. Nothing but a pure waste of God-given talent. You don't listen to nobody, man. Not even Doc or Boone. Shiver push on the line every time, man. You blow right past them. Push them, pull them, do something. You can't run over everybody in this league. And every time you do, you leave one of your teammates hanging out to dry. Me in particular. Why should I give a hoot about you? Huh? Or anybody else out there? You want to talk about a waste? You the captain, right? Right. Captain's supposed to be the leader, right? Right. You got a job? I have a You've job. You've been doing your job? I've been doing my job. Then why don't you tell your white buddies to block for Rev better? Because they have not blocked for him or for Plug Nickel, and you know it. Nobody plays, yourself included. I'm supposed to wear myself out for the team? What team? No. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look out for myself, and I'm going to get mine. See, man. That's the worst attitude I ever heard. Attitude reflect leadership, Captain. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ashley Lentz. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad you have joined us for worship this morning. We are continuing our message series, Official Epistles from Other Apostles. Uh, such a mouthful. It simply means official letters from other Jesus followers. We have been journeying through the whole Holy Bible together this year and have spent most of the summer in the New Testament epistles, the New Testament letters. And so we continue this week with the letter from James, one of Jesus' followers, also Jesus' brother. Uh, before we get into that, what you just saw was a clip from Remember the Titans. This is my favorite movie of all time. Hands down, my most favorite movie. Uh, if you have never seen Remember the Titans, you can find it on Disney+. Plus. You have to see Remember the Titans. Last night, I said to, to the crowd, honestly thinking that there's nobody who's never seen Remember the Titans. Like, it's such a, such a great movie. There can't be anybody who's never seen it. And, like, so many people came up to me after service and said, we haven't seen it. Don't tell me if you haven't seen it, because I will judge you for that. Go home and watch Remember the Titans. <laughs> Truly one of my most favorite movies. Uh, it documents the real-life story of... Uh, uh, 
school in uh, Alexandria, Virginia in the year 1971. That was only 52 years ago, by the way. Uh, They were the first school in that area of the country to be desegregated. So they took the black high school and the white high school in town, and they mushed them together into T.C. Williams High School. And the football team was really the first, uh, the first people who played into that, if you will. Football starts before the school year. And so as a mixed racial football team, they had to figure some stuff out. They lived in the segregated South for a very long time. And to be on the same team to accomplish the same purpose, there were some pretty big walls that needed to fall. And in the clip you saw, uh, Denzel Washington, Coach Boone, says to his team, you're going to get to know each other whether you like it or not. And Gary and Julius are kind of the two leaders who eventually have this conversation. And the way that they interact with each other is brutally honest. Really hard conversation for them to have with one another, calling out some things in each other. But you will eventually see that that leads to some pretty beautiful teamwork, people accomplishing what they have been called to do, and working together as a team. And it has an impact not just for the team and that high school, but for that entire community. And it's what James does for the early church. He calls them out on some behaviors, on some actions that aren't really speaking to following Jesus. These people know Jesus. So context for you. James is a disciple, one of the followers of Jesus, also Jesus' brother. That's a big deal. James knows God. He walked this earth with him. He hung out with him. And like you or I might have a sibling, I have a younger sister, I know her. I know her flaws. I know what drove me nuts about growing up with her. I also know all the really wonderful things about my younger sister. We've spent a lot of time together. James knows Jesus. So James is writing from a sort of different perspective than our other letter writers. Uh, James writes a little proverbially with a little bit of wisdom, kind of uh, as if we were reading Proverbs, slightly different, but kind of in that tone. And he writes as someone who sat and learned from his older brother. James will quote things that sound like they come from Jesus because they do. It's like James sat at the Sermon on the Mount and took notes and then wants to repeat for this early church what he remembers Jesus teaching. James also is heading up the church in Jerusalem. So Peter and Paul have left on their missionary journeys around the world. They're going to spread the good news of Jesus with the rest of the world. James stays put in Jerusalem, where Jesus did most of his ministry in this area. So James is hanging out with people who would have also known Jesus. People who maybe had firsthand experiences of walking with God or learning from him or hearing one of his sermons. James is leading the church in Jerusalem. This is a whole bunch of Jewish believers who are now walking the way of Jesus, living out the life that Jesus has called them to. James is also, scholars believe that James is the earliest Christian document that we have. Not just in the Bible, the earliest Christian document that we have. I think that is super cool. James is writing very shortly after Jesus' ministry, after his death and resurrection, earlier than all the other Christian documents that we have today. James writes this letter. And he is going to lovingly but very poignantly call out the actions of this early church. He's calling them to live differently and truly live out 
what it is they believe, who they are following. As I do with most of my sermons, I like to do some research on the front end, and so I picked up some commentaries that, uh, of theologians that I respect and who are highly regarded in the field, and I turned to N.T. Wright, and as he began his commentary on James, he began with something really fascinating to me. This is on one of the first pages of N.T. Wright's commentary about James. This is how N.T. Wright begins. He says, How easy it is for us to imagine that God is stingy and mean. I thought, why would we think that God is stingy and mean? Well, if you've read James, the way that James calls out the behavior in this church might feel a little stingy and mean. We might think that the rules or the actions that God wants for us are a little harsh. So N.T. Wright says that at the very beginning. We might believe that God is stingy and mean, We project on the maker of all things the fearful, petty, or even spiteful character we meet so often in real life. He goes on to say, often we project on God what you and I look at in the mirror. We project our insecurities, our fears, our struggles on God. And then he says, learning who God really is and what he's truly like and reminding ourselves of it regularly is the key to it all. The way that N.T. Wright begins his commentary is that he wants readers to know who God actually is. We might have preconceived notions about who God is, and as we dig into James, it might be really easy to throw James under a rug and say, not really applicable for today. But we're going to begin, like N.T. Wright does in his commentary, and like James does in his letter, with the promises of God. We're going to remind ourselves who God really is and what he's actually like. So if you have your Bibles, you can open with me. James chapter 1. Here's one of the first promises that God mentions, uh, or that James mentions as he begins his letter. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God blesses those who patiently endure teaching and temptation. Testing and temptation. Afterward, They will receive the crown of life that God has promised to them. What a beautiful promise of God that there are blessings in our endurance and that there is a crown of life on the other side of that endurance. It's important that James mentions this promise because the way he actually begins this letter, verse 1, he introduces himself. Here's verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. I don't know about you, but it's kind of been a heavy week or two around here. I've been sad, angry, lots of questions. There is a war that continues to rage in our world that's absolutely horrific. There was a funeral here on Friday for a high school senior who died way too soon. It's just over a month month or so ago that I did a funeral for a one-month-old infant You continue to share with me the struggles, the trials, the diagnoses, the marriages that have abruptly ended. You're all facing really hard stuff. And if I said to you, as you share those things with me, dear brother, dear sister, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And just left it at that. No context. I just said, oh, you got a trial. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. 
that would not be a very loving thing for me to do. In fact, you probably would not come back or share any other vulnerable thing about your life with me. It's so important that as James reminds this church of how to live and how Jesus calls them to live, that he continues to remind them who God actually is, what the promises of God are, because yes, we are supposed to consider our suffering and trials pure joy, but we do that in the context of God's promises to us. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There is life on the other side of all of our trials, temptations, and suffering. James is going to continue with these promises in chapter 1. Here's verse 17. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Wouldn't we like to take credit for the good and perfect things in our lives? My son Paxton, he's almost two. He is pretty awesome. I might say that he's perfect. I mean, I know that he's not, right, because he's human. But, like, he's almost perfect. Wouldn't I like to take credit for that as a parent? Like, I am raising a perfect two-year-old. He is brilliant. Yeah, uh-huh. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not, that's a gift from God. That's not me, because I'm not perfect. I am flawed. And honestly, Paxton is not perfect either. But all the good things in our life, when I look at that little man, that is a gift freely given coming down to us from God our Father. God never changes or casts a shifting shadow. What a beautiful promise that we have a God who never changes. We live in a world that absolutely changes, a world that feels the waves, the shifts of war, that feels the waves, the shift of society. We have seasons where we are shifted by real-life circumstances, and we have a God who never changes in that. That's a really beautiful promise that we can cling to. In the very next verse, James reminds us of another promise. God chose to give birth to us by giving, his, giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. You are God's prized possession. He could have picked anything in all creation to be his prized possession. He chose you. And he chose me. We did not earn that, and we are so far from being perfect. And yet, God chose you, and God chose me. Out of all creation, we are his prized possession. You are prized in God's eyes. And it is within this framework, these promises, that James is going to call out some of the behavior in this church. He's going to call them to a different way of life, to be different to live in a way that points people to Jesus. Before we dive into that, it's important that we talk about how we approach Scripture just for a minute. Because the way that James's audience would have heard or received this letter, they would have had a different lens in reading Scripture or hearing it taught than you and I do. So our Western lens of approaching Scripture, the way that you and I learn, whether you are cognitively aware of this or not, the way that you and I learn is highly conditioned by Greek philosophy, believe it or not, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, we learn with a knowledge-based approach. We highly regard cognitive knowledge 
as an important thing in our society. So when we sit and we listen to a sermon, or you sit in a classroom, or you read scripture, the question or the lens that we approach that with, whether we're thinking about it or not, is how does this inform my life? What is this going to teach me about me? It is a knowledge-based approach. What am I going to learn from this? We want to know stuff. And that is not a bad thing. It's just good for us to be aware of. We approach scripture with a knowledge-based approach. What can I learn from me? How is this going to inform my faith? And often, as we sit in worship, we want to leave knowing how James, or whatever we're talking about, is going to inform me today. How is this going to apply to my life? Not a bad lens. And our Jewish brothers and sisters would have read this very differently. The Jewish lens of understanding, of learning, when they came to scripture, when they heard a teaching, the first question they would ask is, what does this teach me about God? And not in a cognitive knowing sort of way, in a relational kind of way. What does this teach me about God? How can I know the character of God better? Through scripture, through teaching, and how then can I live this out? It's a very action-based approach. It's relationally based, and relationships stem from our actions. We work at relationships. What does this teach me about God, and therefore, how can I be in deeper relationship with him? So as James calls out action, we need to switch our lens a little bit from knowledge-based to action-based. Put ourselves in the shoes of the people originally hearing this would have been super applicable. And honestly, it wouldn't hurt us to look, approach learning more in a relational sense day to day as we are simply aware that there are different ways to learn. So James continues in James chapter 1. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. There was quarreling in the church. There was a lot of arguments in this early church. Certainly, these believers were facing persecution. They were still under the empire of Rome. But there was a lot of things that they couldn't control in their world. And so rather than, you know, fight the powers that be, these early believers fought each other. They were getting mad at one another because that was the easiest person to take down with you. So James looks at them and he says, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Anyone ever heard this verse before? We pluck these things out. Here is the context of where it actually shows up. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. We can listen, we can learn, we can have knowledge about God's word round and round and round. There's another calling here. It's to live out who God has called us to be. So some of the things, you can go home and read James, four chapters, but some of the things that James pulls out, in chapter one, James pulls out being divided, having divided loyalty. He says, you cannot be for God and for the world. He's lovingly nudging these, these early believers. Hey, the world has a way of living, and you can't keep one foot in that way of living 
and also say that you follow God. You're either all in with God or you're not in at all. I think we can learn from that a little bit. We tend to think we can keep our faith kind of small. Jesus in a box. I'll get him out when I need him. You are either all in with God or you are not in, James says. He continues, he calls out prejudice. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? He calls out our words, the way that we speak, the way that we interact with each other. He calls out anger. And by the way, anger is not a bad emotion. Jesus God gives us emotions for a reason, and Jesus himself got angry. But anger that attacks one another out of small, petty, spiteful, not godly things, that's not godly anger. That gets nobody anywhere. So James continues to call out the actions of these early believers, asking them, if you actually know God, Your actions will be different. In chapter 2, he says, Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. It's true. Some people can have faith and some people can have good deeds. Some people can have good deeds without faith. But as believers, we're called to do both. Faith and good work. James says, how can, I show you, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? You and I might be able to answer that question today. How can I show you my faith without my good deeds? Well, we'll sit down and grab a cup of coffee, and I will tell you all about my faith. And between you and me, we actually could do that because we live in the same culture, same context. We understand knowledge and learning, and so it actually might be helpful for someone exploring their faith to sit down and have a cup of coffee and learn what faith is. Not a thing in Jesus' day. That was not the lens in which people learned. So when James says, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. This made all the sense in the world to everyone. I have to live this out in order for other people to see it. It's true of you and me today, too. We can talk round and round and round and share our knowledge. But until we actually live it out, it really doesn't have all that much power. It's really important that we clarify something here. If you have grown up in the Lutheran church, I've grown up in the Lutheran church, we talk a lot about not liking works righteousness, okay, is the fancy word for it. It means being made right with God by what we do. So we get to something like James and we say, but wait a second, we don't believe in being made right with God by our work. And you would be accurate. You are correct. So I'm going to be super clear about this. Our work, our good deeds do not save us. We are not made right with God by what we do. We are made right with God by what Jesus has done for us. We are saved by grace through faith, period. We are saved by grace, free gift, (coughs) excuse me, period. We do not earn salvation. In fact, you could have all the good works in the entire world. You could be as close to perfect as perfect comes, and you still could not earn your salvation, 
our salvation, our eternity, completely dependent on Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that, that you and I don't get a say in that. It was all up to God, and he did all the work for us. You are saved by grace through faith, period. So we know that this has eternal impacts. This also has an impact on our present. So if I know today that I am saved by grace through faith, what does that mean for my present? It means that I live differently. It means that my faith actually flows out of who I am. We are saved by grace through faith so that we can live a life that's built on and points others to Jesus and this same grace for them. Sometimes, this is a humbling thing to realize, sometimes my life is not for me. It's to show all the other people who don't know God yet what that's like, who he is. I already know it. Sometimes I wake up and I do the God thing, not because I feel like it, but because it matters for the people watching me. What you do today actually does have eternal impact. Maybe not for you. You might already know this to be true. But perhaps for the people around you, our work actually does matter. As much as we'd like to sweep James under the rug sometimes as Lutherans and say, Psh, he, he was kind of wrong. His theology doesn't really fit with ours. Fits right alongside ours. We just need a new lens to really appreciate it. Our work matters. The way that we carry ourselves matters. Other people watch. It's a very humbling thing to realize that. <clears throat> and that's what James is ultimately going to call us to, a life of humility, of servanthood. I'm going to show you another clip from Remember the Titans. As Gary and Julius have that important conversation, they call out some things in each other that need to be addressed for the team to move forward. And in a very humbling way, Gary and Julius take that call out to heart, and walls start to fall for this team. They're still at camp. So this is shortly after the conversation that you saw earlier. You're going to watch as they humble themselves, and this team really starts to live out what they are called to do. Take a look. What was that, Ray? Whatever it is, it ain't blocking. Give me a break. You want a break? I'll give you a break. Me and Julius. Wait, 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 wait. Just let, let them in. Get the rev once, just one time. I swear to God, I'm gonna hit you so hard by the time you come to. Ooh, boy, you're gonna need a new haircut. You understand me? <clears throat> Let's play, fellas. Come on. Run the ball. Let's run it again. Let's go. goosebumps when I watch that scene. For real, if you haven't seen it, you've got to go watch it. 
It also has a fantastic soundtrack, in case you were wondering. To have a hard conversation leads to walls falling. It's going to help them live out what they've been asked to do, to really be a team. It's going to bring an entire community together. James is going to repeat over and over and over and over again as he finishes this letter the importance of humility, of humbling ourselves. He says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. This is humility that comes from godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. And I think humility maybe gets a bad connotation. We think of humility as being lower than, maybe a position of weakness. Biblically speaking, humility is actually a position of strength. Humility means being able to come alongside, posture yourself as a servant, to serve those around you. It's exactly what Jesus shows up on earth to do. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus shows up to serve, so our call is to show up and to serve, to come alongside, to have a humble contentment, a deep contentment in who God has called us to be. Doesn't necessarily mean happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It comes and goes and is circumstantial. But to be deeply content in who you are, because you are God's prized possession, and you stand on a firm foundation, a God who never changes, and you know that there is a crown of life that is waiting for you. So we do good work with the humility that comes from wisdom. Again, James is going to say it over and over and over again as he ends his letter. Here's James chapter 4, verse 6. <clears throat> God gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a promise. We started with God's promises. James ends with God's promises. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This free gift, he gives it to the humble. Do you know what the opposite of humility is? It's pride. It's arrogant pride. Arrogant pride says, my desires are more important than your desires. What I want and what I need, I'm just going to take because I deserve it. My cause, in fact, is worth fighting for. Perhaps my cause is worth killing for. We're watching millennia of prejudice and pride play out in our world stage right now. It's literally the oldest sin in the book. Adam and Eve take what they cannot have. God says, look at this beautiful garden. You can eat anything you want except from that one tree. And they do it anyway. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Being humble means we posture ourselves as a servant. It means we don't have all the answers. It means we probably put other people's needs before ours. We serve them. The very next verse, James continues... Verse 7, please. Thank you. So humble yourselves before the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Come close to God and God will come close to you. Let's not take that lightly. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a pretty big promise. In fact, when Jesus walks the earth, demons flee in his presence. They tremble at his name. There is no darkness in our world that God will not defeat, that he does not drive out. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. It's a pretty powerful relational action item, if you will. If we're just looking at that with a knowledge lens, cool, God knows me. Relationally speaking, that's a pretty powerful thing. As you come close to God, he's going to come close to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Humility is not something that the world uplifts as honorable. The world uplifts honorable things like strength and power and pride and status. Jesus has never been about the way of the world. In fact, when he shows up, he flips all of those things right side up. The way of the world is not the way of God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor is the promise of God. The world's not going to recognize our position of humility. You're not going to get status for it. You're not going to get credit for it. God sees it. That has eternal value. So we say, how do we do these things? How do we read this and be okay with being humble? What does that look like in our daily lives, a posture of servanthood? Well, it means we joyfully endure. Not happily endure, but we joyfully endure endure. Told you it's been a rough week or so around here. I know you're all facing hard things too. I have questions in those hard things right alongside you. I wonder, Tyler and I were just talking about this, why doesn't God prevent war like what's happening in Israel and Gaza? I have questions about that. Where is the light breaking through today? I'm not sure. Why doesn't God prevent horrible, awful, tragic death, like the death of a senior in high school or a one-month-old? I don't know. I don't have answers. I certainly have questions right alongside you. Those questions are not bad. And we're still called to joyfully endure in the middle of them. The questions point us to the mystery of God. We're actually not supposed to have the answers. If I did, I would share them with you. We don't really get to know on this side of heaven. What we do know is that the promises of God do not change, that God is unwavering, that in the middle of our trials and our questions, he doesn't change. He stays the same. You remain his prized possession, that he has died and resurrected for you, that there is a crown of life that is yours, and that there will be a day where darkness no longer has a place where light will absolutely break through all the darkness we have ever seen. I often say that I will ask God my questions when I get to heaven, that I'm going to walk into heaven and just have a laundry list of questions and be like, please explain to me all of these things. Here's the deal. The minute you and I walk into heaven, we will not care about those things because they won't exist anymore. There will be a day where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. 
There is light upon light. All creation will be restored. Darkness will have no rain. In the meantime, we live differently. We joyfully endure. And we come alongside each other to do it. We humble ourselves. We do it as a team on a mission with a purpose so that other people see God in us. There's a humble contentment in that, knowing who it is we are and what we're called to do and knowing who God is in the middle of it. I want to end on a high note. So one more clip from Remember the Titans. They have started their football season. Some walls have fallen for the team, but they still live in a part of the country where there's a lot of racial prejudice. And so they've won game one and game two. They're coming into game three against the Groveton Lions. Groveton is an all-white school, and there's been some racial tension leading up to this game anyway. But the Titans are going to show this massive crowd and this white school who they are in a pretty powerful way. Take a look. What's going on? Coach. Oh, we wanted to let you know we was going to warm up a little different tonight. This is the first true test of the season for the undefeated T.C. Williams Titans, because tonight they're going up against the undefeated Groveton Lions. Their all-state nose guard, Kip Tyler's as mean as a copperhead snake. And here come the Titans. They're playing in front of the capacity crowd for the first time this season. we thought you were going to have us walk out singing, we are the Titans. And I was like, no. I was like, but maybe on Sunday. Just kidding. You're off the hook. I won't do that to you. Everywhere you go, people want to know who you are. What are you going to tell them? Better yet, what are you going to show them? There's a call for all of us to live very differently, for our actions to speak louder than our words, to have a deep contentment, joyful endurance, a posture of humility each and every day, and to lean into the promises of God because they are your promises. They're for you. You are God's prized possession. I hope that as you leave this place, you remember God's promises are for you, that there is no shifting in this world that shakes our God, that darkness will not win, 
nor does it define your life because you know God. And then we can walk alongside each other as servants, pointing each other to Jesus along the way.